Welcome to Product Leaders Podcast, a podcast by FireArt Studio. We delve into the world of product leadership to help empower you to improve end user experience. I'm your host, Dima Wenglinski. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Dima Wenglinski. I'm host at Product Leaders Podcast. Today, our guest is Jamin Brazil. He is a seasoned chief executive with a background in leading high growth organizations from inception to exit. Over the last 20 years, he has developed a deep knowledge of market research, which gives him a unique view of market opportunities. As the previous CEO of Focus Vision, he was the first to bring to market a combination of qualitative and quantitative technologies that are used by 75% of the Fortune 100 and over 3,000 users' companies globally. Prior to Focus Vision, he pioneered online service, conducting one of the first ones in 1996 and founded a leading survey platform, Decipher, in 2000. Jimin is the current chairman of HubUX, he is also a business advisor for the Italy, and he is also the host of the Happy Market Research podcast. Hello, Jamin. It's nice to have you today. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Tell me, please, a little bit about your background, what you have been working on. So my recent project's been HubUX. I started that in 2019. It's a qualitative automation platform for those that are not market researchers or uh, user experience professionals. Qualitative is, is where you conduct one-on-one interviews with people. So it'd be very analogous to this exchange that we're having right now. But there's two issues. One is finding quality people. And the second one is coordinating schedules, because as you know, these things can be difficult to coordinate. And so HubUX solves both of those problems. Recently, in in November of 2022, so this year, I sold HubUX to VoxPopMe and am now the managing director of HubUX for VoxPopMe. VoxPopMe is a video analytics platform. And uh, the reason we decided to do that acquisition or that transaction, I should say, is because one of the big problems now is analysis of video content. And so, you know, conducting 10 or 20 one-on-one interviews, analyzing that video is very difficult. What VoxPopMe's AI-enabled video analytics platform does is it takes that massive amount of data and consolidates it into themes and bubbles up the items that are important for participants so that business owners are able to get right to the heart of the consumer. Wow. Congratulations with Exit. Sounds amazing. (laughs) Thank you. It's been fun. (laughs) Uh, What is the synergy between you two companies? Yeah, the, the synergy is really around, they do video analytics and we do video participant recruiting coordination and video capture through Zoom. And so it's really taking those Zoom videos and then analyzing them in the VoxPotMe platform. What data do you have after this analyzation? Yeah, you're able to analyze the data in a cohort framework. So, you know, unstructured data, again, thinking about podcasts, podcasts are an example of how you have a lot of data. You know, we might have 10,000 words in this podcast today. So that's a lot of data, right? But it's unstructured largely. 
So you're able to do cohort analysis. You could compare, for example, on gender, male versus female versus cis male, cis female, right? To see what differences there could be with those four gender types. And again, it's just really creating shortcuts to the insights without jeopardizing the quality of the content that the participants provided. Wow. Sounds really cool and complicated. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, it is super cool. You know, I mean, the problem that it's addressing, the pain, is for researchers, when they do 10 one-on-one interviews, those are an hour-long interview, right? So now I have 10 hours of video that I have to re-watch and pull what the themes are across all of the 10 interviews. And that's very time-consuming. That usually takes three hours for every one hour of video. So that's 30 hours of work that has to be done in that analysis phase. What Vox Popme's platform does is it analyzes that data instantly through its AI engine and identifies key themes and issues and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, again, by specific groups of people, and then surfaces those things so that the researcher is able to get right to the key insights. And then at the end of it, what it gives you is a highlight reel. So you can see what the top issues are according to the four gender types. Okay. So it analyzes all the videos then pull the data from them and come up to you with insights from them, like essential parts. You said it much better than I did. (laughs) Sounds really cool. What brought you to Hub UX? How it started? Yeah, I'm a career market researcher. So I've been doing market research since 1995. And I'm also a career entrepreneur. I have this curse of seeing pain in business and then identifying like how technology could address that pain. So I just can't help myself. I have to build something that will address the problem and hopefully the market really likes it. Right. Um, So yeah, I'm a practitioner of research and it's also, you know, where I monetize the products and services that I bring to market. So to, you know, to address my own pain in a lot of ways. So with Hub UX is really around, I was doing a lot of qualitative research at the time and recognized that this was a material opportunity. Yeah, I noticed that you're a professional career entrepreneur because I went through your background and I found out that your first business was webconstruction.com in 1993. That's right, wow. In 1993, I was eating dust in the playground. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an age thing, but yeah, it was very early in the dot-com. I mean, that's right when DNS became a thing. And very, very early, even pre-Yahoo days, if you really want to go back, you know, the indexing, we're at this really interesting point, literally this week in technology, where from a historical point of view, you've had three main phases. You've had information at scale, which was the 90s, the Yahoo framework, where everything was manually indexed by human beings so that you could basically have a portal and quickly find the thing that you were looking for on the internet. So it was very manual and human curated. And then you fast forward into uh, the 2000s and Google, of course, completely different indexing framework and way for people to be able to gather the information, the insights that they want. And then the, the next phase, of course, is mobile framework. So that experience that was desktop-based moved into a mobile framework where when Jobs launched the iPhone in 2006, and then you know the 
subsequent adoption of that now is just pervasive. In fact, right now in Consumer Insights, over 85% of surveys that are completed are done on a mobile phone versus on a desktop. So, you know, you've got this like behavioral change that's happening on one, how information is being curated. One, the first was human and then algorithm based. And now we're at this fourth phase where open AI has created a completely different way for us to be able to gather the answers that we're seeking. In fact, my wife, she's a school teacher. She used open AI this morning just to help her create some test questions for her sixth grade science students, right? And it's interesting, the application of that works both ways. Her students could then put in the her test question, right? And then get the answer from open AI, right? It, which, so it's this very interesting phase of human IQ, our IQ collectively has gone up by over 10 points through just improvements to how we input things, grammar and spelling are examples of that. And so we've collectively become AI enabled, if you want to think of it like that, collectively smarter, right? And now all of a sudden, there's another massive leap in our collective intelligence, because now we're able to start leveraging AI to help us understand the world. So it's an exciting, it's an exciting time. Yes, yeah, new loop of the world. Of course, GPT-3 and half yep. is up and running, yep. right? You have to become agile with using it, because otherwise you will be outdated. <laughs> exactly. I mean, your point is very powerful. It's the difference between the Neanderthal man and the modern man right? Or humankind. Like it would have taken her about an hour to create her test questions. And it took her 30 seconds to create her test questions. So there's two benefits. There's better test questions that are created, right? And there's an hour added to her life that day to be able to do things, whether it's added value or time with, you know, whatever she cares about, time with kids or et cetera, et cetera. So the benefits there is really centered around time. And time is the one commodity that is finite. We can make more money, right? Literally everything else we can gather more of, but you know, there's 24 hours in a day or what have you. So it's an interesting sort of value add to our lives that it creates. Yeah, I totally agree. The dilemma is to stop using it at some point because we should always remember that for now, it's not creating the content, it's modify content in a way, and it does it really, really good, but it's not creative. It's not. It is not creating any new stuff that could be used in science, for example. That's exactly right. I think to your point, it's by no means the tip of the spear when it comes to innovation. So it's not gonna be the driver of change. But as we know, 99% of the population doesn't live on the tip of the spear. They live behind it. And, and that's where I see that collective benefit. And there's some big traps around it. I know this is not the topic for today, but there are some material traps that we need to be aware of from an ethical perspective. The biggest one being bias that's built into it and all of the dangers around it surfacing a point of view that we take as humans as truth and it actually not being truth. Yes, of course, because AI based their knowledge on the data that they have been feeded. The data is biased by its nature. Like, for example, those majordomo or AIs, they base women face on 
the most popular women face in internet, right? And most popular women exactly. face are subjectively pretty. So it can't be unbiased. Exactly right. All right. It's always interesting for me to talk about AI because it's connected to my education. But let's get back to the topic. All right. Who are the competitors of Hub UX? Something like yeah. user testing or something exactly. like that? Exactly. User testing is a big competitor of ours. User Zoom, probably one and two in the competitive. Their products are centered around user experience researchers. So organizations like Meta have thousands of research professionals that are doing one-on-one -on -one interviews with users. And they're doing things like watching their behaviors. So user story. Dot com would be an example of a platform that they might use. But most of the time, they're having conversations like this as well. And in the user experience or UXR, user experience research, is a relatively new discipline. It's come up in the last 20-ish years, well, 15 years, and is growing much faster than market research. But the tool sets, the frameworks are really centered around very simple screening requirements, meaning that you're limited on the number of questions that you can use to screen out who you want to talk to, as well as you don't have like a complex survey engine underneath it. And so where Hub UX differentiates itself is twofold. One is we have an integrated survey engine, so you can use it just for surveys if you want to. Then the other aspect are video audition questions. So participants have to provide a video where they answer a question that's posed by the researcher. And if the researcher watches the video and says, yeah, I want to talk to that person, that's when the scheduling of that person takes place. And so it addresses the quality of the participant because it's hard to lie uh, in, in a video framework as to who you are, as well as subject matter expertise. So if I ask you a question about AI and you don't know anything about it, you might be able to lie relatively easily in a text framework, right? But in a video framework, it's much harder to pull that off. Okay, got it, got it. Thank you very much. Tell us about customer-led product growth and how it differs from a product-led growth strategy. <laughs> yeah, so product-led growth strategy. So I really think of it as two schools. You have one which is more of a bolt-on approach that is market-led, and it has its place. And so what I mean by that is, and I did this at Hub UX, we started with a, a core framework that allowed a customer to be able to create a survey, and then schedule participants. And then after we got some companies using us, then we saw where the issues were, or where they needed additional features in order to accomplish what the, they were trying to accomplish. And so we continued to build on top of our core platform. And then as we did that, it became more and more the whole product for that customer persona. So uh, for me, I start with, when I think about business, when I think about product, right? Because in product and business for me are the same thing in, in a lot of ways now, because that's a transaction. That's the way that you monetize the benefit of the relationship. So if I create a product, then my intent oftentimes is to monetize that product. And so the degree to which I address pain, then I should be able to reciprocate being able to monetize that, that benefit, that solution. So that's how we keep score on who's doing a really good job from a product perspective. Now, I know what you're saying, probably in your head, which is that's not really true because marketing plays a bigger part in successfully monetizing. And I totally agree with that. If we start with the framework that there's a connection between money and building good products, 
Okay. Then what, what I do is I create a platform by which I can do the, the basic stuff for the, whatever the customer need is. And then I listen to customers. I watch what they do. And I talk to customers every day and I ask them what they like, what they don't like. And I ask them how much time it's saving uh, or what sort of benefits they receive from the platform uh, and what they wish it had. And then from that information, I'm able to create a direction, an agile direction for product building. And my philosophy on product is really around trying to win a very niche audience and be the dominant player in that niche audience. And then once I achieve that, then I can look at branching out and I'm okay going slow in that niche so that my product is built accordingly. The other approach for me is is one where you really start with, you build it with the hopes that they will start using it. So it's much more of an expansive product that goes to market and then you throw marketing into it and then all of a sudden you get the customers, but it's it's much less led from a customer point of view. And I'll give you a really practical example. As I mentioned a moment ago, we have a video audition question in our platform. The video audition question, we're the only company that has that, which is absolutely amazing to me. We've had user researchers from many, many companies that say they absolutely love it. And at the same time, they are using user interviews more than they're using my platform, right? And so that's where I think user interviews has been doing a better job on the marketing side, even though they have, not always, but in some ways they have an inferior product. And so, you know, you can't decouple marketing from the equation of how you monetize product. But at the end of the day, growth definitionally is around, and by end of the day, I mean, it could be at the end of the cycle. Growth is connected to revenue. And so you need to be thinking about how you're ultimately going to get this product into the hands of the consumer. And so that's where I think the product-led growth, the product is leading you down a path to a point. And then after that point, you really need to rely on the customer to take you the rest of the way. And then you need marketing to be able to expand into that niche. I totally agree with you that there is a direct correlation between product growth and money, because you can't make money without good product, obviously. Right. But let's say you have a pre-traction product that has no traction at all, and you have 10 bucks to divide between different activities for this product, how you would divide it in terms of marketing, product growth, product market fit, understanding, and so on? How much time do I have? Let's say infinite. Infinite time? Okay, yeah. I love it. Yeah, 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 we don't care about time, we just care about distribution. And I'm pre-market fit? Yeah. So pre-traction? Okay. So where I would spend all of my money or most of my money in pre-market is in customer interviews. So prospective customer interviews and prototyping. That's where I would spend my dollars. I've personally lost a tremendous amount of wealth by building products that I thought were the right product or the right variation before I got market proof. I know this pain. Yes, it's tremendous. And I have many, many scars from those experiences. And it's a hard lesson to learn. I wish I could tell you I've learned it so far. I'll give you an example of a big failure. When I was CEO of you know, an $80 million qualitative company, technology company, I believed that there was an opportunity to... Are you familiar with focus groups? Yeah, sure. Okay. So focus groups, you have like eight people sitting around a table and there's a moderated conversation that happens. This was like 2000 and I want to say... 16. 
And that's when 360 cameras became a thing. So a camera would sit in the middle of the table and then based on it would voice detect who was speaking and then that camera would fix on that speaker. The core business that we had was capturing and streaming those focus group conversations. We did that in 1600 facilities globally. So it used to be the case before the 360 camera that there was a camera that would sit behind the moderator. So you'd see the bald spot, the guy's head, right? And then you'd see the room. And it's just this very unattractive video experience for the remote viewer. And so I believe that you could fix that and create a much more engaging, right, with this 360 camera. That makes sense, right? Intuitively, that this makes perfect sense. Who wouldn't want to see that? Well, it turns out the market didn't want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> The market was fine with the guy's bald spot and the rest of it. Like, it just didn't matter. And what was interesting that surfaced was people really just weren't watching the videos. So if they were watching the video, they were alt tabbing out and they were just listening to the audio conversation. They were not actually watching the video. So the value wasn't in the video at all. Yet that was the problem that I was trying to solve. And so that's an example of a very expensive lesson learned and a year worth of, I mean, like, you know, I can't tell you millions of dollars and thousands of hours wasted on that because it just made so much sense to me that that would be the problem that people would want us to have solved. But in fact, it wasn't. Yeah, I totally understand you. I have two experiences like that with my deep beliefs that there is a gap in the market or some problem that I can solve. Yeah, happens yeah. with everybody. Yeah. Although you're a professional researcher, so it's a little bit more shame on you. <laughs> It's more embarrassing for me. I totally agree with you. A hundred percent. It's so embarrassing. <laughs> Happens with yeah. everybody. What kind of user insights organizations should be using to leverage good customer experience and grow their products as a result? I'm leaning in heavily to qualitative. You know, in consumer insights, there's really two different types of data or research. There's quant and qual. So quantitative, as you know, is usually survey-based. And that's structured data. So there's things like Likert scales. Many people know net promoter score, NPS. That's an 11-point scale, 0 to 10. How likely are you to refer my product or service to a friend or family? That's the question, right? And it goes from not likely at all to very likely, right, on the scale. So that's an example of a Likert scale. And the reason that we ask questions like that is because I need to get 10,000 responses or 1,000 responses so that I can analyze that data and find out who likes me, who doesn't like me and why, right? Like what's the gap? So I have to structure that data in such a way that I can analyze it quickly, but you as a human don't necessarily think of it like that, right? Humans have, we have binary experiences largely. We have a good experience, a bad experience or a non-experience. Meaning it's just like, we just kind of go through the process, right? The good and bad are really that top and bottom 5% of the experience. So somebody goes out of their way and it's a very unique experience for you. And you really appreciate that um, when you're shopping, you know, at the store and you can't find the whatever thing and versus, oh, I don't know, you go find it yourself. Now it's a very bad experience. That human interaction is negative, right? So the problem with that is nobody thinks in Likert scales. Think about the last time you went on a date, you had a good experience or a bad experience or a non-experience, but you didn't process that afterwards as, you know, on an 11 point scale, this is where I rate that person. We don't think like that as humans. So the reason that surveys exist is because we need to have a conversation at scale, but we need to be able to analyze that data so that we can make a decision quickly in business. What has happened, and this started back in the 1920s with door-to-door -door surveys. 
So you fast forward to today where we have AI enabled insights. So I can take a bunch of unstructured data and still get to do customers like me or not instantly, right? So now it's a new phase. You know, you've got about $80 billion a year globally that are spent on survey data, which is a lot, right? And you only have about $8 billion that are spent on qualitative data, like this conversation. I think what's going to happen is there's going to be a role reversal where you're going to see qualitative eat up quantitative research through bot-enabled conversations. And that's going to happen in the next 10 years. And the reason it's going to happen is because it's how humans communicate. It's how we process information. It's how we give information. And it makes a lot more sense to us to be able to have a conversation like we're having now. The problem is that, you know, the analysis of this unstructured data is impossible when you get a thousand one-on-one interviews, but now we can actually do that. So I believe that conversational data, whether it's bot enabled, right, which is asynchronous or it's synchronous like this conversation where it's one human to one human. I believe that is going to be the best way that businesses can get insights from their consumers on the product experience as well as growth opportunities. Okay. I also heard about bad ways to ask questions. Yeah. So for example, you mentioned whether you liked our product or not. And I heard of it as a bad example of question because you like forcing a guy or a person to think about that before he never thought about that. Yeah, he, he has right. no opinion about that. The question is how to ask correct questions to be soft, but not too soft. Yeah, that's great. So there's two things that you've got to think about. You're probably familiar with Nike's Air Jordan, the shoe. In the U.S. market, there's Nike, of course, a shoe company. They were the pioneers of the celebrity-endorsed shoe. So Michael Jordan, a very famous basketball player with Chicago Bulls, he was the first major celebrity endorsement of a shoe. This happened decades ago. Well, Nike was trying to decide if they were going to pay him, you know, I can't remember what it was, let's say it was a million dollars to endorse their shoe. So you have... Shoe A, which is the Nike shoe, generic, and that is sold for $50 US versus the Air Jordan, and that's sold at $100 US, right? So you've got this difference between the uh, cost, but it's the same shoe. In research, if you ask a consumer, are you willing to pay $50 more for the same shoe if it's endorsed by a celebrity? All consumers are going to be rational and they're going to say, absolutely not, right? That makes sense. But this is very popular, as I know. This is very popular, as you know. And so the reason why is because we don't buy, even in business, we don't buy intellectually, we buy emotionally. So the right way to ask that question is, here's two shoes. This shoe is $50. This shoe is $100. Which one would you buy? And then the consumer will say, I want the Air Jordan, right? So if you ask them the question, would you pay $50 more for the Air Jordan? They're going to say no, because there's no emotional framework connected to that. It's just you've reduced the Air Jordan to a series of features, the price being a feature, right? And it's just not comparable. But when you show them the two shoes, now all of a sudden you've got actually like an emotional connection of the two differences without describing, really, this is endorsed by Michael Jordan because they can see it's endorsed by Michael Jordan. So my point is that The best way to ask a question is really to show the stimuli so that the person can decide if they like it or not and what they like about it, to your point, as opposed to, do you like it? So I would never say, going back to the Air Jordan, if that was the product that I was bringing to market, I would never say, how likely are you to buy Air Jordan for $50 more than a generic 
right? And so anyway, that's like one thing that's really important. You cannot decouple emotion from purchase if you're trying to measure purchase intent. The other thing is really around leading questions. This is a big trap and it can be a material waste for businesses. And so a lot of times if you're doing product research, you might get to a point where the consumer is, you know, they might have fleshed out their point of view on the product. And so then the interviewer, or oftentimes the marketer or product person will say, well, what if, and and as soon as you move into the what if, you know, what if it was blue or what if it was endorsed by another movie star or what if, right? And when you move into the what ifs, you're now in an imaginary land that has no constraints, in which case you're stuck you don't know how to interpret their point of view because you can't read their mind. You can't see the world or the product they're imagining that you're describing. And so again, you want to be very tactile and specific when you're showing products and or you know mock-ups or those kinds of things. You don't want to move into the what-if scenarios. It's too broad and it's too imaginative. And leading questions are where you ask a question that a person can't disagree with. So an example of that might be something like, you know, is open AI good for teachers to use, right? I could write a questionnaire or a set of questions that would say yes. And I could also write a set of questions that would say no. An example would be, is it okay to have embedded biases in the curriculum for teachers? And you would say, no, you shouldn't have embedded biases in provided curriculum, right? In which case it has embedded biases. So therefore it's bad. Um, Alternatively, I could say, is it good for teachers to have more free time? And you would say, yes. And then I would say, well, look, AI is good. So that's another trap that you can fall into. Yeah. Since you mentioned prices, I do have a question about pricing. What's your stance on pricing and trials as a way to encourage customer-led growth? Money is very interesting. And a lot of times people think of it like it's not the primary way of connected to product. So, But pricing is very much connected to product. It is a feature of your product. Uh, And so there's $2 in a business. If you're in a B2B framework, uh, there's $2. There's an existing dollar, which is budgeted and it's being spent to solve a problem. Okay. And then there's a new dollar. So they don't have that in their budget and they have to go to procurement and get that budget increase improved. It's very hard to get a new dollar. And the reason it's hard is because they're not spending the money in that area. And usually they're not spending the money in that area because they don't see the pain already it's much easier to win for an existing dollar. And so if you're competing now for an existing dollar that they're spending, then you need to understand how they're spending that money right now. So what are the terms of trade with the current competitors? It could be like in market research, when I started Decipher in 2000, there were very few online surveys being done. And in those days, the way that research was priced It was called a cost per interview. And the cost per interview was based on the incentive that was paid. So if I was intercepting people in a mall, then I would pay them $5 for 15 minutes of their time to complete a survey. And so that was the transaction that was taking place. Well, you transition that to the internet. What's the right model? In the early days of the internet, we didn't even pay incentives. People just wanted to provide surveys. But the market was already consuming research based on a cost per interview, right? And so instead of creating a new pricing framework, I created a cost per interview on a, in a digital framework. And that's how I monetized my survey platform. And that's how most companies, including Qualtrics, monetize their completes to date. Now, you do have like SurveyMonkey, which has a 
does not have a cost per interview associated with it unless you use their audience. And so you want to make sure that you're trying to match as close as possible your cost to how the consumer is already getting budget and paying for things. So you don't believe in freemium model in service business. Am I correct? I do not believe in freemium service business at all. No. I think that if it's a service, then it should always have a cost associated with it. Yeah. And I don't think that's hard to unlock. Even for pre-sale? Yeah. I actually think if you're building a product, the best place to start is with service because you will start seeing the opportunities for automation and building product around that specific service that you're trying to fulfill. So if I have a service of moving dirt from one area to another area with a wheelbarrow, right? Um, I should get paid something to be able to do that. It should be whatever the market would pay for that work to be done. And then at some point, it would make sense for me to build a robot that would dig out the dirt for me because maybe that's really hard or maybe it's an automated wheelbarrow that takes the dirt from one spot to another spot. You know what I'm saying? And that's where the product starts being applied. Yeah, I just think that all the markets are pretty saturated with products. I mean, you have yeah. product and app for every solution. You want to find a wash for your dog. You have app for that and Uber for, yeah. for cats, you know. So I think that freemium model started to be very popular in order to compete with other products. So you can like go to market and say, hey, it's for free until you very like it and then you can buy it. Yeah, and I think you're right. Like with products, which are different for me than service, starting the trial or the freemium model actually has a material role in that user journey. And that's sort of the expectation. Even in an enterprise sales, there should be some level of freemium or cheap solution so that you can trial the product. I mean, look back if you're familiar with them, which is a video sharing platform. You know, they started in the first 12 months, they had 3000 active users, nobody paid anything. And then they just flipped the switch and it was a hundred dollars a month or something. Then they had a thousand people that were paying them a hundred dollars a month. Right. So yeah, I think like freemium has a role in the early days of product building. And I think freemium has a role of introducing potential customers and markets to your more sophisticated you know, so for example, with HubUX, our ACV annual customer value is around $50,000, right? So fifty dollars to $100,000. So in that world, we still have a freemium offering. So uh, anybody can go onto the platform and create their account and do a, almost the exact same thing that they're going to pay me a fair amount of money for if they sign up for an enterprise account. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But the reason that they want to pay, which kind of gets to it, is because they want to be treated differently. So in an enterprise framework, you want to build something that has material benefit to the business. And if it doesn't, then you're going to lose, right? And so that's the most important part. And that's why before I was talking about the importance of making money. Like if you're selling into Disney, for example, and they're paying you $1,000 a year, they don't really care about you. You're not solving a big problem, right? But if they have a big problem, let's say they're going to optimize their agile product strategy, right? And that might have $50 million or $100 million or a billion dollar outcome for them. They're going to expect to spend $100,000 to $500,000 to solve that problem because it's really important and they want to spend the money because they want to be treated a certain way. Yeah, I agree. What is the best and worst part of your job? <laughs> That's a funny question. The best part of my job is working with really smart, driven people. That I absolutely love it. It is my absolute favorite. It's all about the team for me. And the worst 
the worst part of my job is when I do stupid things like I ignore the market and I launch I launch headlong into a 360 camera. <laughs> <laughs> and that haunts me forever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is a story that you can tell to kids, you know. Yeah, the kids. <laughs> anyway. First thing I thought that you will say that this is the best part of my job. And then you will say exact same thing, that this is the worst part of my job. <laughs> because, like, you know, I also work with a lot of really smart, cool people. Yeah. But sometimes it uh, it is hard as well. <laughs> It is super hard. I totally agree with that. It is super difficult. You know, smart people are oftentimes, well, they're smart. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's right. Maybe too smart yeah. sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and a good example of that is me, like going back to the 360 example, I had a lot of people saying, Jamin, this isn't a good idea. We shouldn't do this. Right. And yet I'm like, I'm the CEO. Guess what we're going to do? And that's what we did. And it turns out not the best choice. So I definitely have been on the side of probably one of the more obstinate, difficult people to work with. What is the funniest situation you had to deal with at work, except this 360 degree cameras? Funniest for me is connected to fun, which might not be exactly what you mean, but I'll, I'm going to keep it there. So for me, the funniest parts of situations. We did a strategic meeting in New York last week. And in the evenings, we would all go out together. And for me, the fun and the funniest, right, happen in those like after hours moments. It's very connected to the humans that are involved. We, we've had lots of human stories where people are doing really silly things. One of them, we did a piano bar. And of course, everybody had a little bit too much to drink. So you're making a fool of yourself trying to sing. I think it's really important to connect fun to business because you spend so much time with your peers. You know, if, if you're not enjoying your time with them, then it's really sad. And in a world where we spend so little time physically together now, when you do have opportunity to be physically together, it's important to take advantage of it. Yeah, I totally agree. I recently realized that I'm actually connected to a lot of our coworkers and we are friends, we hang out together a lot. We know each other's kids and we know their stories about this and that. And then sometimes it's sad when, when somebody leaves. Always. And you are compromised because from one hand you're their friend and they leave because they found better place or like bigger salary or whatever for reasons. And you should be happy and simultaneously you're your heart is broken because you will not longer yeah. be playing with your yeah. fellow, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that the, to that point, like the connections that you make in your early part of your career, depending on your personal trajectory, you probably have attracted people that are similar to yourself from a potential. And so a lot of times I'll see people like yourself who are the CEOs and CMOs and CPOs, uh, CTOs, et cetera, of you know, large companies in the next 15 years. And so it's really important that when those people leave our immediate sphere, that we don't see that as a permanent situation and that we maintain connection and even cultivate those deep relationships so that we can take advantage of them in the future. And it is less about, if I take advantage, I don't mean like opportunistically exploit. I mean, leverage them for mutual benefit in the future. And so, yeah, I think it's I feel like I've done a, a pretty good job of investing in my network over the last 25 years. And I'm very thankful for that because for me, success is tethered to three things. One is the amount of work that you bring. The hustle is the US term for that. The other is 
your innate skill. So you have some like natural capacity that is bred into us through our DNA. And then the third is the size of our network and depth of our network. And so if you can like triangulate those three things and you'll have an oversized outcome personally. It was amazing speaking to you today. And uh, it was very interesting conversation about AI, obviously. <laughs> How to avoid this topic, I mean. <laughs> thank you very much for your time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. I'm excited about being able to tune into your podcast and I'll also give you a shout out on mine. So please be sure to send the episode to me. And again, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be able to meet with you. My co-founder of Decipher, Back in 2000, he and I actually coded together for about five years prior to that. And, and he was based in Poland, but he ultimately moved to Denmark. But anyway, very appreciative of you taking the time. I know it's late. Thank you, too. Have a great day. You as well. Bye-bye. Bye. Product Leaders Podcast is brought to you by Fire Art Studio. I was the host, Dima Wendlinski. To find out more about FireArt and how we aim to build a brand that will contribute to the world with useful products that empower people and make their lives easier, visit fireart.studio. Search for product leaders in Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you never miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at FireArt Studio, thank you very much for listening.